there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Sheets here of questions that have been organized under headings for me. Then I also still have a bunch of blue cards. So what I'm going to have to do is just try to zoom through these. And let me say at the outset that in a question and answer period of this kind, which I love doing, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to try to speak directly to the areas of concern, I realize that I can never say all that I want to say about something in my talks, and there's always room for misinterpretation and misunderstanding, so I'm very glad to try to clarify those things. But there's one very big limitation, which is time. There isn't any way that I can give a full answer to any question, and if I give what seems to you to be a very brief answer, sometimes it may sound like a pat answer. I don't mean for it to be that way, and I'm not giving you the back of my hand. I can't say everything that I'd like to say, but I trust that you understand that. Let me also say that I don't think God is nearly as interested in answering our questions as he is in teaching us to trust him. And very often, there isn't an answer. There, there are things in our lives that God is not going to solve. He's not going to do anything about them. He wants us to do something with them. And so, again, we're back to an attitude of mind where we are at his disposal. We are willing for his will. So the first category, there are two questions under the category of family. How do you effectively communicate to your family that you are expendable? If this is a question written by a parent, I would say that I wouldn't worry too much about uh, communicating that you are because everything you're doing, if you're a good father or mother, demonstrates that you are expendable. Every day, a mother and a father are laying down their lives for these children. It is not going to impress the children particularly, and it's a very profound spiritual lesson that it would not be worth your while to try to explain to a small child. But if you can demonstrate your unselfishness, your willingness to be inconvenienced in order that they may not be inconvenienced, then that example says far more. That is the effective way to communicate it. But, and this is a very important but, when I talk about a father and a mother laying down his life for his children, that certainly does not mean that you are supposed to do everything for your children. That is the worst thing that you could do. That would not be faithful mothering and fathering. Your job is to teach that child to be unselfish. The child must learn not only to obey you, but to serve you. The child must learn to respect your quiet time and your privacy. You are not to be at his beck and call. You are to work yourself out of a job by making a mature Christian boy, man or woman out of that child. That is your job, isn't it? And he will not be mature if he's waited on hand and foot. There is plenty of opportunity for you to serve him in a way, in ways which he will never understand. But it's important that he learn to serve you. As a mother working full time to help support my family, how can I truly be a living sacrifice and be effective in God's plan? Sometimes there doesn't seem to be enough time in the day. There is always time to do the will of God. I said earlier, I think, it is always possible to do the will of God. Nobody has ever failed to do the will of God because God didn't give them the strength and the gifts and the time. God will always give you enough time to do his will. If you're working full time to help support your family, of course you can be a living sacrifice and be effective in God's plan. If it is truly God's plan for you to be working to support your family, and as I said this morning, I wish you didn't have to, but if before God you have faced all other possibilities, if you have asked him for a different answer and it hasn't been forthcoming, then your doing of that job faithfully is the will of God. 
You need to see that, whatever it is that you're doing. When I'm standing up here speaking, I am serving God at that moment, as far as I know. But I'm not serving him better or more effectively than when I am cleaning the toilet. Now, did you ever stop to think about that? I mean, obviously, my ministry is not just writing books and speaking. If I were to total up the exact number of hours in a year that I'm standing in front of an audience, plus the number of hours that I'm actually sitting at my computer writing a book, it would certainly not come to nearly half of the hours in a year. Because I also sleep about eight hours a night. I eat. That takes about two or three hours a day, counting fixing the, the meal and cleaning it up. And I wash dishes and clothes and go to the grocery store and iron my husband's shirts and write thousands of letters. All of those are a part of the will of God. None of those is an interruption to doing the will of God. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? It's not an interruption. Jesus said, I do always those things that please the Father. Now, Jesus did a lot of preaching and teaching and healing, but he only did three years' worth of that out of 33. What was he doing the other 30 years? Why aren't we told? Well, those are hidden years. They're silent years. But he was always pleasing the Father. When Jesus was sitting down beside a well because he was tired, he was pleasing the Father as much as when he was preaching to 5,000 people. When he was sitting, enjoying a village wedding... A social occasion where he made seconds on wine. Don't forget it was seconds on wine. He was pleasing the Father as much as when he was raising Lazarus. Because he said, I do always those things that please the Father. Next category is women. If you could challenge college women to one thing concerning giving God total control of their life, what would it be? I would say sexual purity. If I had a chance to talk to either college men or college women, that would be the place that I would start after, of course, speaking about what salvation means and what it means to be committed to Jesus Christ. But I'm convinced that perhaps the most crucial testing ground in the life of any young person is this business of the love life. I know it was the crucial testing ground in my life. Crucial comes from the word meaning cross. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you must encounter a cross. And that cross is going to be very painful. And so whether you have a love life or you don't have a love life, the chances are there's going to be something very painful where you're going to have to learn to bring that thing under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is not Lord of your sex life, Jesus Christ is not Lord of your life. Why do you believe women should not be preachers? Because the scripture makes it very plain that there is a mystery being enacted in the church and in the home. It is a drama which represents Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's as if there is an enactment of the mystery of Christ and his people. The deepest mystery that we know anything about is compared to the marriage relationship. It does not say, husbands, submit yourselves to your wives as Christ submits to the church. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. So in other words, the man is playing the part of Christ in the home and in the church. Women are not to usurp authority. The authority, the buck stops, in other words, with the men. You are the ones who were created to be the initiators. Now, I could go into much greater detail here, but I'm going to leave it at that. And if you want to know more, then I would urge you to read my book, The Mark of a Man. What is your opinion about Christian wives and mothers working outside the home? I think this question must have been written after this morning's talk. Number four, please explain God's desire for women in leadership roles in the church. I've just answered all that I can say in a short time about that. It is because of this mystery, and we're treading on very perilous ground, very thin ice, when we start to mess around with the mystery of Christ and the church.
God does not explain it. He simply says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. I am to submit as the church submits to Christ. He is to love me and to be my head as Christ is head over the church. These are not interchangeable roles. I, I tamper with them to my peril, to my spiritual, emotional peril. And this whole idea of equality, which comes straight out of the secular and political world, has no business being introduced into the church and the home. Because in the church and the home, what is the law? The law is love. It's a different system. And where the law is love, we do not talk about equality and we do not talk about rights. The only thing Jesus says about his rights, about rights is lay them down. Give up your right to yourself. The only other thing he says is I have a right to lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. Now, that's my right. But let's not ever talk about equality, because when you talk about equality, you are erasing or at least obscuring the line which God drew between masculinity and femininity, which is the line that shows the distinction between Christ and his church. So if I say that I am equal to my husband, then it's exactly the same as saying the church is equal to Christ. And you and I know that's nonsense. Number five, what is the role of a woman before and after marriage? Does it change? Yes, it certainly does change. Not in the sense of submission. A single woman does not have two theaters in which she plays her mysterious part. She has one. A single woman must be in subjection to those who represent Christ in the church. She does not have a husband to whom she must be in subjection. Of course, anybody's to be in subjection to their parents as long as they are living under their parents' roofs or being supported by their parents, then it's very obvious that they are to be under their authority in the, in the, under those conditions. But my role certainly changed from being single when I got married. Then I suddenly had to become subject. And in my particular case with Lars, some of you may know that the way I met Lars was that he rented a room in my house when he was a seminary student. I took in two seminary students. They lived in my house for two years. I told them what to do and where to get off and when to pay their bills and when to dust their rooms and clean the bathroom. I was in charge. Well, number one lodger, the first one, married my daughter. The second one married me. Now talk about a shift in roles. All of a sudden, this same house became Lars's house. It wasn't my house. I was under his authority. And instead of me telling him where to get off, he now tells me where to get off, as you can readily see, or where to get on. When I told this story of how I found number three, and I didn't find any of them, God brought them to me. I didn't go out after them, girls. Never chase men. When you chase men, you are giving a very loud and clear message. Number one, I'm desperate. And number two, you're not man enough to get me. I have to get you. And that is an insult. Anyway, this Texas friend of mine, she said she wanted to know how in the world I ever got number three. Well, I said I didn't get any of them. But I told her my story of how I met Lars, and she thought about that for a minute. She was a widow in her late 70s. And she said, I believe I'm going to rent my house out to three widowers. Marriage, if I know God has chosen, these are seven questions under this heading. If I know God has chosen me to be a missionary and I'm single, should I only date guys who are to be missionaries only? Um, my advice would be don't date at all. If you know that God has called you to be a missionary and you're, and you're single, then I would just move down that course like a thunderbolt. You head for the mission field. If God wants to bring a man into your life, he knows how to do that. But... If you want to read how that worked in my life, you can in the book Passion and Purity. Both Jim and I were headed for the mission field. We fell in love. We decided that we would not 
take this matter into our own hands. We only ever had one date, and that was before I knew that Jim was in love with me, before anything had been said about any kind of a commitment. And that one date, incidentally, was to a missionary meeting where we heard the daughter of the great missionary C.T. Studd speak. But dating is a very distracting business, and it's a very perilous business. And I have some very strong things which I'd like to say on the subject of dating, and there's not nearly time to go into all of those things now. But the whole scene nowadays is so chaotic that I just think it's time that we call a halt, just say, look, forget it. Dating has fallen on terrible times. It leads people astray all the time. And I would rather see you leave that matter in God's hands. It's very important for you to realize that you do not need one date with a guy to tell something important about his character. If you have an opportunity to observe him in your neighborhood or in church or at work, it's amazing how you can tell pretty much what that man's character is like. Look at the way he treats other women. Look at the way he treats his mother. Look at the way he does his work. That's what I did. I watched Jim Elliott for months on a college campus. Never had a date with him. Never had a conversation with him. I knew without anything except that distant observation, here is a man of character. Here is a man who has put himself under the lordship of Christ. This is the kind of man I want to marry. Never dreaming that Jim Elliott would ever look at me twice. Um, what does the Bible teach about remarriage? Well, it teaches, for one thing, that a widow is free to marry whom she likes as long as it's in the Lord. If you're talking about remarriage after divorce, then I would refer you to J. Adams' book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. It's an enormously complicated question, much too deep for me to go into, but J. Adams has written an exhaustive treatment of that, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What do you think of the concept of tough love? James Dobson. I have not read James Dobson's book, but what I've heard about it, I would certainly endorse. Love must be tough at times. And the scripture says in Deuteronomy, from his right hand went forth a fiery law, yea, he loved the people. God's love is demonstrated in his discipline. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He corrects, he disciplines, he punishes. How do I know when the right guy comes along? You'd like a neat, easy rule of thumb, wouldn't you? And it doesn't do much good to say, you'll know, because obviously thousands of Christians are making horrible mistakes, maybe having gone on that advice. This question touches the deep roots of how you can know the will of God. And I gave you the three primary principles this morning. You must tell him you'll do what he says in advance. You must spend time reading your Bible and praying. And it's going to come out of that hidden life of prayer that the will of God is going to be unfolded to you. It does not come with handwriting on the wall or with a pillar of fire or with a star of Bethlehem. And the third thing is to do what you know God wants you to do. In other words, taking one step of obedience in something you're sure about will give you light for the next step. And God leads us one step at a time. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, not a searchlight on the path. Do you think that everyone should get married? Well, it's a good thing I don't know who wrote this question, but obviously it's impossible. Wouldn't it be ridiculous for me to say yes? It's impossible for everyone to get married. We live in a fallen and a broken world. There are thousands and thousands of people who are going to be single because of the fact that God's original plan has been botched. I believe it was God's original plan for every man to have his wife and every wife to have her husband. I think that's very plain. But it was ruined by the very first couple. And sin and death and destruction have come into the world and distorted everything. So now, as a result of sin and death and destruction, we have singleness. We have widows because of death. 
we have divorced people because of divorce. Both of those things are results of sin, aren't there? Aren't they? There are thousands of people who are going to be single because of abortion. Do you ever think about that? Your husband was killed when he was one month in the womb. There are thousands of people that are going to be single because of homosexuality. We have to come to terms with the fact that we live in a fallen world. And God is not fixing all of that yet. Not until the apocalypse. Number six, how big a part should counsel play when determining God's will for your life, especially in marriage? I'm very grateful for this question. I would say a very big part. And by counsel, I mean godly counsel. My parents, I know for sure, prayed at least four of the six of us children together with the people that we married. All six of us are married, and all six of us are married to Christians it may be that they prayed for all six. I don't happen to know of two of the couples, but I know that my parents had met Jim Elliott. They prayed specifically that God would eventually bring us together, and it was five and a half years before we were brought together. And in three other cases, my parents prayed specifically for a certain person to marry their child. In one case, my brother Tom, my father prayed for him to marry a woman from Birmingham, Alabama named Loveless Odin, who was a missionary in Japan. My brother was a teacher in England. There was no way that they were ever going to get together. It was after my father's death that they got married. I would say, by all means, you men particularly, if you believe that marriage is a part of God's will for your life, and I would settle that with him first through prayer and long waiting on God, share that view, that belief with somebody who is a spiritual father or mother, maybe your own parents or somebody else, somebody that knows how to pray, somebody that knows how to keep his mouth shut, and somebody who will pray specifically for your choice of a woman, then I would say take very seriously whatever advice you get. I think that arranged marriages, I don't think, I know that arranged marriages have been the rule in most of human history, for most people, and the record of success of arranged marriages is infinitely better than the record that we have nowadays with our do-it-yourself method. So take very seriously the counsel of godly people. Number seven, why did you decide to remarry? Well, for the very simple reason that I believed it was the will of God. I could not even imagine remarrying after Jim died. I thought it was a miracle that I got married the first time let alone the second, let alone the third. Six questions under the heading of mission. How do you see the mission's challenge to the North American church changing in light of the rapidly increasing number of third world Christians? I think it should be a primary emphasis of American foreign missionary effort that they encourage the third world Christians to do the missionary work in their countries. This is obviously a far more efficient use of manpower and money if they who already live in the country and perhaps speak the language that's necessary will do the missionary work, then by all means we Americans should do all that we can to facilitate that. That is exactly the kind of a thing that my brother Dave is doing. He's the one that's the president of the World Evangelical Fellowship based in Singapore, and his job is just traveling round and round the world, encouraging third world Christians and encouraging uh, the European and American Christians to do what they can to support them. When you decided to go into the jungle and live with your daughter, weren't you afraid for her life and what the natives might do to her? I knew perfectly well that the Alka Indians who had killed my husband would be very likely to kill me and my daughter. The Quechua Indians who had lived as close to the Alcas as any other tribe, said to me, you don't need to worry about them killing your daughter. What they will do is kill you and keep her. Well, that was a far more frightening prospect for a mother, that my three-year-old daughter might be kept as a sort of a mascot and raised by a bunch of, tri of naked savages. But here's the scriptural principle at work here. My obedience 
is the only thing that I have to worry about. The results of my obedience are none of my business. When the five men went into the Alka tribe, they knew that these people were killers. They knew perfectly well they might not come back. We wives knew that. We talked about it. We accepted it. We laid it in God's hands. We prayed for their safety. They sang, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender, and they didn't come back. Does that prove that they made a mistake? Well, what about all the millions of martyrs in Christian history? What about Stephen when he was up there preaching, filled with the Holy Spirit, and got stoned to death? Why didn't Jesus stop them? Why didn't God stop them? Why didn't Jesus do something instead of letting John the Baptist stay in prison until his head was chopped off? My business is obedience, trust and obedience. And when I have done the right thing, the results are totally in God's hands. And I had to settle that. It was settled once and for all when I was 12 years old, as far as my own life was concerned. But of course, it takes a fresh commitment for a mother to learn to trust God for her children. Now it takes another kind of commitment for me as a grandmother to trust God for my five little grandchildren. I would be tempted to be terrified. Imagine your five grandchildren living in Southern California. I would a thousand times rather have them living in the jungle. I'm perfectly serious. The dangers are infinitely worse on the Santa Ana freeway. But they're there in obedience to God, as far as my son-in-law and my daughter know. So you don't need to worry. You know, you're, you are totally in those everlasting arms and as i said last night there is only one safe place in the universe it's in the will of god if you think the will of god looks dangerous what i'd like to ask you is where do you think you're going to find this security you're so concerned about exactly where what is the situation with the alcas today i don't really know very much about what's going on among the Alcas, whether there are any Christians there or not. I assume that there are some. You've probably heard all kinds of fantastic stories about it, but you've never heard them from me. Um, there are oil companies systematically destroying their hunting grounds, so they will be doomed as a people because they cannot survive without the hunting. There are about 15 oil companies drilling in their territory now. And the New Testament has been reduced to writing and is being translated. The uh, rough draft of the New Testament has been completed, but only in the rough draft. How did you know that God was calling you to foreign missions specifically? How may I know? I would refer you to my little book on the guidance of God, A Slow and Certain Light. There were several we might call them human factors that went into my own decision. And I think any decision is made up of not only the scriptures and prayer and a deep heartfelt conviction, but also the circumstances. One of the circumstances of my life was that I grew up in a family where my parents had been Christians, where we had been missionaries, where we went to missionary meetings and looked at missionary books and read missionary books, and looked at missionary slides and entertained thousands of missionaries in our home. So from the earliest memories that I have, I wanted to be a missionary, maybe a medical one. But it was when I was in college that I realized that God had given me a gift in linguistics. So that was the second factor. The missionary atmosphere, the gift in linguistics, the information that I learned in college that there were 2,000 languages that needed to be reduced to writing so that the scriptures could be put into them. And I put two and two together and I figured here is a need, here is a gift. Why shouldn't I volunteer? I learned this week that there were 30,000 people killed for their faith last year in East Africa, South Africa, and Central America, as well as other parts of the world. Why do we not hear of these things in the churches in America except by those closely involved? I suppose that politics has a lot to do with what we hear. I know that politics has a great deal to do with the filtering of the news so there's no way of knowing how much that explains this, how much that answers this question. We also live 
in such a terrible world with such tremendous knowledge because of the mass media, we know too much and we are bludgeoned by shocking things every day. Well, you can't be shocked every day of your, of your life. You eventually get calloused. God has created us in such a way that we do get used to things, fortunately. We do learn to tune out. So we just can't take in this much data. And I don't think we can always be all stirred up about everybody in the world all the time. We have to love our neighbor. And the neighbor, as Jesus showed in his parable of the Good Samaritan, is the person that lies in the ditch when you happen to be going by. God knows how to bring you to the right ditch at the right time. I don't buy this idea that I'm supposed to have a burden for everybody in Afghanistan and in war-torn Afghanistan, all the starving people in Ethiopia, all the people that are getting killed in South Africa. In a very broad general sense, I say, yes, it's tragic and I can pray for them whenever something like that comes to my attention specifically. But how can I function if I'm supposed to be always dissolved in tears over everybody else's pain? We cannot do this. We're just human. Did you meet the Alka people who actually participated in killing the five young men? Yes, I not only met them, I learned their language. I got two of the killers to tape for me on my little tiny tape recorder a blow-by-blow -blow account of everything that happened that day in January of 1956. I can tell you the names of the five Alcas that did the killing. Kikita, Nimonga, Minkayi, Dewey, and Kimmel. They're all good friends of mine. If you want to read more about that, it's in the book called The Savage, My Kinsman. Miscellaneous, if there were only one more message you could share, what would it be? One more message. Trust, obedience, and worship. But there really isn't a whole lot of difference between those three things. They are inseparable. The highest form of worship is obedience. How do I know that? Because God said to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Don't go around with a Bible under your arm if you didn't sweep under the bed. Don't give me pious talk if your life doesn't demonstrate what you believe. And so my obedience is my daily act of worship. I offer myself. I offer all that I am, all that I have all that I do, and all that I suffer. That is my life. My life is an offering. It is an act of worship, an act of spiritual worship. All that I am is this body with its emotions, its intelligence, its temperament, its personality. All that I have, that includes my sufferings, my, my work, my possessions, all that I do, my work, whether it's writing books or cleaning the bathroom, and all that I suffer, that is all material for sacrifice. If you're lonely, if your heart is broken, the scripture says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. So in that very fact of being brokenhearted, I have material for sacrifice. It's an act of worship. Where do you teach? I don't teach. I used to teach at Gordon-Conwell Seminary years ago, but I was only an adjunct professor. I'm no longer there. How do the men respond to a woman professor? Well, most of them quite well. They signed up for my course, and it was an elective. In what denomination did you grow up? It's one you've never heard of, a little tiny denomination in... New Jersey, after I was nine years old, up until I was nine, we went to something called the Reformed Episcopal Church. But from then on, it was a little tiny denomination called Bible Protestant. Does God's agenda involve a fixed calling? For example, pastor, music director, missionary, teacher, etc. There's no such thing as a fixed calling. God calls a child to be a child, a teenager to be a teenager, an adult to be an adult, 
he called me to be a missionary for 11 years, but I'm not a foreign missionary anymore. There's nothing fixed about it. God doesn't show us his will for our lives. He shows us all that we need to know about his will for today. This same question goes on. Some of the most non-productive, non-directional people I've associated with said that God had called them, but that he has not called them to specifics. He has called us to the very specific matter of holiness. That is far more important than a profession or a geographical spot. But we are certainly called specifically to holiness. And we are called to be thanksgivers also. In everything give thanks. This is the will of God concerning you. But we are called first and foremost, first, last, and always to Christ. Let's remember that. It's not nearly as important that I'm called to be a missionary or called to be a writer or called to be a mother as it is that I'm called to Jesus Christ. So that when that job is finished, which in a sense the mother's job is once the children leave the nest, She's still called to be a disciple of Christ. My calling is to a person, not to a job, not to a geographical location. Number four, describe a normal day for you. My days are really very routine at home, and I do love routine and monotony and predictability. So one third of my life is anything but routine and monotonous and predictable. Last or two weeks ago, Lars and I arrived at the Boston airport to make a flight to Chicago, where I had a speaking engagement, to find the lines for the tickets all the way out on the sidewalk. You could not get through the revolving doors because all flights for the day had been canceled. The airport was closed. So there was nothing routine about that. Yesterday, when we got to Boston, we found that our flight had also been canceled, and we had to wait four hours to get another flight to get to Tulsa. But I presume this person means at home. And my normal day begins early in the morning. My first thing on the agenda is uh, to drink a couple of glasses of water and get on the scales in the other order. I'd get on the scales first and then drink a couple of glasses of water. Then I read and pray. I spend quite a long time in my study. Lars is in his, what he calls his office, and I have my study. Gives you an idea of how we define our jobs. Those two different words. And then we eat breakfast about 8 o'clock. We get up early, but we don't eat breakfast till 8. So we both get a lot of work done before 8. I am back at my desk by 9. And to me, that is a deadline. It is as important for me to be at my desk with the computer turned on by 9 o'clock as if I had a time clock to punch into. That is my agenda, which I believe is under God. And, of course, God has his own ways of bringing alterations in those plans. I don't kill myself with guilt or regrets if I can't get there by 9 o'clock because maybe somebody calls or somebody comes. But that is what I aim at for myself, and I'm there from 9 to 12 every day attempting to use that time for either writing books or articles or my newsletter. It doesn't always work by any means, and I don't answer the phone. If Lars is home, I never answer the phone. He does all that. He takes care of all the orders and the travel arrangements and screening out everybody that he possibly can. And he runs all the practical things, except for the housework, which is my job, and I try to do that in the afternoon. I really do love housework. I save most of it for Saturday mornings when I am home. But as in the case of today, more than half of our weekends, I guess, are not at home. But... That's it. We have almost no social life. My correspondence, my errands, my phone calls I do in the afternoon, and we eat rather plainly. We have, we've had to give up social life at home just because of the fact that it doesn't fit in. There's no way that we can do it. It's not top priority. And then both of us are back in our respective study or office in the evening doing more of the same. What are the steps to personal holiness? I would hope that everything that I've said in the three talks will answer that question by now, basically. What is your evaluation of the modern charismatic movement? I don't know what to say about it. I don't want to say very much. Let me just say that the wind 
bloweth where it listeth. I would not want to say that it is not a work of the Holy Spirit. It's very obviously not a work of the Holy Spirit where the emphasis is primarily on experience rather than obedience. I think it's one of the great pitfalls which has plagued the church from its earliest inception that people would rather have an experience than be required to do something which is hard to do. So obedience is never to be set aside in favor of spiritual experiences. And I refer you to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second second uh, Corinthians 12, where he talks about that very strange spiritual experience that he had. He describes it as having been caught up into the third heaven. And as you may remember, it was such a bizarre and indescribable experience that he starts out talking in the third person so that you don't even know he's talking about himself. And he doesn't quite know how to describe it. And he's not allowed to tell us what words he heard. But then he says, he lets you know finally that it was he, in fact. And then he says, but in order to keep me from becoming absurdly conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Now, Satan would love to sidetrack us by giving us pride because of a particular kind of spiritual experience. And God saw to it that even though the thorn was Satan's messenger, it was given to him under the sovereign plan of God to keep him from becoming absurdly conceited. So that is a lesson to all of us, I think, that we, we must be very, very careful not to emphasize experience. And I think the tragic downfalls that we have seen in the charismatic groups in recent times may be traced back, perhaps, to a failure to emphasize sufficiently the importance of holiness, true holiness in the hidden place, not in a big campaign, not in standing up and lifting up your arms. There's nothing wrong with that. I have nothing against it. I have nothing against the clapping. All of those things are biblical. Lift up holy hands. Clap your hands. But unfortunately, that may be all that some people know about Christianity. It has not occurred to them that Jesus Christ is supposed to make a difference where it will never be seen. What a man does when he's not, when he thinks he is not under observation is the true test of his character. And I think we can also say the true test of the validity of his faith. The second caution that I would give about the charismatic movement is thinking that a particular gift is required to prove that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The scripture does not corroborate that. The scripture makes it plain that the Holy Spirit gives many kinds of gifts. Not all speak in tongues. Not all are preachers. Not all are evangelists. It is important that we be faithful according to the gifts that God has given us. And doesn't it make sense? Isn't it reasonable to believe that God will give you the gifts which are appropriate to the job that he wants you to do? I had an invitation from a certain charismatic group to speak, and I wrote back and accepted their invitation, and then I got a phone call from the lady, and she said, I'm very sorry, but I forgot that I was supposed to ask you in the first letter whether or not you speak in tongues. And I said, no, I don't. And she said, well, I'm very embarrassed, but unfortunately our rules say that we cannot have a speaker that doesn't speak in tongues. Well, you know, that's fine. Anybody can have a rule that you got to wear purple socks if they want to, but it seemed a bit ironic to me because Paul, when he lists tongues, then he says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. Now I'm going to show you what the best gifts are. And he said, prophecy is a better gift than tongues. Prophecy, which simply means building up and encouraging the church. And then, of course, love outshines them all. So I could only say to the lady, among the gifts that God has given me, that does not happen to be numbered. So he has given me, I would assume, the gifts which he thinks are appropriate to the job he wants me to do. Uh, okay, that, that's all I had that were categorized. We still have a few minutes and a few cards here. About your statement, don't take the Bible out with you if you didn't clean out under your bed. Does this mean don't go witnessing missionaries, mission trips, teach until you've cleaned up 
your yard and your house. I would say if the shoe fits, put it on. <laughs> I saw a television thing that they'd had a cleanup day on Boston Common. Boston Common is a very large city park right in the middle of the city of Boston. And they had a big cleanup day. So everybody was out there with plastic bags and rakes. And so the man was going around with his roving microphone and he stuck it under the face of a teenage girl. And he says, well, are you having fun? And she says, yeah. She says, I think this is great. She's chewing gum a mile a minute. And he says, well, tell me, uh, you enjoy this, raking the yard like this? And she said, yeah. And he said, uh, what does your mother think about you being out here today? And she says, well, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, she took a typical mother's attitude toward it. And she says, why do you go out there and clean Boston Common when you haven't cleaned your room? But she says, you know, that's just what a mother would say. And I thought, well, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's, it's great going off on missionary trips and summer programs because it's fun, it's an adventure, and it costs money. <laughs> and if something is not fun and it's not an adventure and it doesn't cost any money, we're not really that interested. So I would say by all means, clean up the yard, clean out the closets, clean out the trunk of your car before you go out trying to clean up other people's lives. Will you please explain Hebrews 3, 13, 17, where he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. You've mentioned about submitting to a husband, not because he's always right, but because he holds an office, divine assignment. So how much do we submit to our spiritual leaders as single women? In the church, the drama that is being enacted is the drama of heaven. There is a hierarchy of authority even in the Trinity. And I think we need to understand that submission to authority is not an admission of inferiority. And if you have any questions about that, look at the Trinity. The Holy Spirit witnesses not to himself, but to Christ. And Christ does not his own will, but the will of the Father. Even though the three persons of the Trinity, according to the theologians, are co-equal, consubstantial, and co-eternal. They are, theologically speaking, equal. But Philippians 2 tells me that Christ did not think equality was something to be grasped at. He made himself nothing and came to do the will of God. So submission to the authorities that God has put over us is a duty. We are to submit to civil authorities. We are to submit to ecclesiastical authority. And the Bible clearly says that if we refuse to do that, we are refusing to submit to God. In other words, we are being disobedient to God. Now, it's not... The business of, say, the single man or woman in a church to decide whether or not the authorities are overstepping their bounds. That is something they've got to get down to business with, with God. And even if you think they may be mistaken, you're not going to lose anything except your life. And Jesus said, he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. What type of man should we marry? A Christian Main things to look for. I would refer you to the 20 questions chapter in my book called Let Me Be a Woman. There are 20 questions, which will be a good sieve for finding the right kind of a person. But they are really just suggestions and I think should be helpful, but not by any means 20 things that every man has to pass. I put about 16 things in the back of my diary when I was about 16 years old and decided that I wouldn't settle for anything less than a man that could pass those 16 tests. Actually, Jim Elliott was not six feet four, and he did not have an operatic baritone voice, but I married him anyway. Um, he fulfilled just about all the rest of the characteristics. But the, most, the only thing that the scripture says plainly is that he must be a Christian. A woman is free to marry only in the Lord. How do you know if you love someone for a mate, choices and feelings in this order? I've already answered that question. How do you know if God wants you to marry someone? That too, we've dealt with. What does Deuteronomy 5.9 mean about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children? 
there are a number of scriptures in the Old Testament that do speak of the children being uh, suffering punishment because of the iniquities of the fathers. It may be that they refer only to Old Testament times because certainly God did have different ways of dealing with people then before the full revelation of himself in the New Testament. Having said that, we also have to acknowledge the plain fact that children certainly do suffer because of their father's sins. It may not always be punishment that God is meeting out, but if you as a father are not faithful and are not taking proper responsibility for your children, they will suffer because of your iniquity. Where is your daughter and what is she doing? Is she serving God? She lives in El Toro, California, which is a town between L.A. and San Diego. Her husband is a pastor of a church in Laguna Niguel. She is the mother of five children. Is she serving the Lord? I would say most emphatically, yes. I don't know any job more vital, closer to the heart of God, more demanding, more consuming, more exhausting, or more fulfilling than the job of motherhood. And don't you women ever listen to anybody that comes around and says, why don't you get out of the house and do something fulfilling? I mean, even the world is beginning to get their eyes open and realize that is nonsense, that they've been sold a bill of goods. Unfortunately, the church trots along about seven years behind whatever the world is saying. Francis Schaeffer said just before he died, tell me what the world is saying today and I'll tell you what the church will be saying seven years from now. Now, that is a terrible indictment. But the feminist movement is obviously losing ground in the secular world. I'm very thankful to say. Unfortunately, the church is still trotting along after what they said seven years ago. But even Betty Friedan has backed down on some of the things she said back in 1970. I saw Jane Pauley on NBC with a very interesting special on working women who had had top executive jobs, were making tremendous amounts of money, and they were testifying straight into the camera. That is not where fulfillment lies. We're going home. We're going to have babies. Did Jim and the others develop a friendship with these people? No. They couldn't speak a word of their language. They only had one friendly contact for a matter of a few hours on a Thursday, Friday afternoon, and Sunday afternoon, they were all speared to death. Second part of this question, if so, what spooked them? Why did they kill them? Did they ever say? Yes, on those tapes that I got the two killers to make for me, they made it very plain that it was not a planned killing. They were afraid because they believed that the missionaries were cannibals. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>